And welcome to episode 80 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm your host, Scott Harvey, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Shelton. Today on the podcast, we are catching up with the latest film in the DC Comics Extended Universe, or whatever they're deciding to call it now. And that film is Birds of Prey and the Fantabulous Emancipation of One Harley Quinn. But first, how are you, Scott? I'm doing well, Scott. And in fact, I'm not even sure that, that is what it's called anymore because they have changed not, the name no. technically. It's now Harley Quinn Birds of Prey. Maybe next week it'll be DC Universe's Harley Quinn's Birds of Prey. Who knows what they'll do to optimize their SEO next? Uh, but yeah, no, I'm doing I'm doing well. We're recording this obviously a, a bit later than we typically do for our new releases just because we did have the Oscars <laughs> last weekend as well. And I did see it opening weekend, so I've had a little bit of time to gestate on this one, thought a lot about it. And I'm really interested to talk about it because... We haven't talked about a comic book movie in a minute. I don't think we've had one since Spider-Man uh, Far From Home, unless I'm just forgetting a really obvious one. So excited Dark, to get Dark Phoenix, maybe? Yeah. No, because that would have been before, because that was June. Okay. And then uh, Far From Home was obviously um, Fourth of July weekend. So yeah, no, excited to, to jump back in it here. Obviously, I've had a lot of uh, different kinds of movies, we'll say. I guess... I guess we did talk about Joker. Does that count as a comic movie? Uh, <laughs> no. Yeah. Uh, so, no, I'm excited to get back into uh, a different, I guess, the DC Extended Universe, because uh, that's what a standalone DC movie. We'll see if it's standalone, if they make a sequel or not. But yeah, <laughs> I've been doing well. Had a This past weekend, I was bat up at Middlebury College in Vermont doing my annual uh, announcing for, at least the first weekend of announcing for the NESCAC Swimming and Diving Championships. So that was a nice break, getting to go back to... Uh, my roots in in talking into a microphone related to sports, uh, but returning home to where I'm more comfortable probably now, and that's of course talking about film. So there we go. If we're if we're counting Joker as a comic book movie, then I think we'll also have to count Taxi Driver and the King of Comedy as a comic book movies, probably. But um, anyway, I think we can finally move past that discourse now that the Oscars are over. Um, and as promised in last week's episode and newsletter, we are also joined by a special guest this week. You know him and love him from the Marvel and Star Wars Countdown series. Uh, Jay Habib is back on the podcast. Jay, how's it going? Hey, Scotts. I'm doing really well. Uh, excited to be back and, you know, diving back into the DCEU uh, is, what, is what I'm going to call it. Um, I only watched this movie yesterday. I was in no particular rush to see it uh, based on some of the promo materials. And we, we can, you know, get to that in a sec, but... I've been sitting on this movie for about 22 hours, and I'm very excited to talk to you guys about it. Yeah, no, uh, this this should be an interesting discussion, and you know, we took an extra week to get to the movie, so we might as well just go ahead and jump into the review now. Directed by Kathy Yan, Birds of Prey opens as Margot Robbie's Harley Quinn has just split up with her boyfriend, the Joker. Finding that she lacks direction without the Joker by her side, Harley goes searching for bad deeds to do on her own but stumbles into a complicated scheme gone awry when she meets Cassandra Kane, a young pickpocket who is being hunted by notorious Gotham villain Roman Sionis, played by Ewan McGregor. Elsewhere, Dinah Lance, a singer at Sionis's nightclub, played by Journey Smollett-Bell, begins to feel uneasy about some of her boss's activities, setting her on a collision course with Harley. 
Elsewhere, a mysterious assassin going by the name Huntress, played by Mary Elizabeth Winstead, is also drawn into the web as secrets from her mysterious past begin to emerge. And finally, there's Renee Montoya, an alcoholic loose cannon detective played by Rosie Perez, who is looking to take down Harley after her breakup with the Joker. Jay, we'll start with you. Does this R-rated Birds of Prey leave an impact with its hyper-violent, candy-colored aesthetic, or is this yet another example of DC needing to go back to the drawing board? I'll go somewhere in the middle, uh, in that the movie was fun. Um, to go back to what I was saying earlier about the promo materials, I, I wasn't excited by the promos at all. Um, so I went into this movie with a pretty low set of expectations. Uh, and it, it was fun. You know, like, it, it was fine, it, is all you're going to get from me, I think. Um, I think this is better than, you know, some of their worst hits. Um, but I, I'm not itching to see this movie again. I'm not sure I ever will watch this movie again, um, unless it's part of some greater countdown somewhere down the line. Um, it was fine. Yeah, for me, I came into this expecting, I'll, I'll see my expectations actually were a little bit higher. I really liked Harley Harley Quinn as, you know, one of the one of the few characters in Suicide Squad that I thought was, you know, some of the better ones. I think her character as well as Will Smith's Deadshot uh, were two of the standouts from that, you know, overall very poor film. And this film for that, at least to that extent, is, is better than Suicide Squad. Obviously an incredibly low bar there, at least in my opinion. So to see that come back to the big screen, to see Harley Quinn specifically becoming being coming back to the big screen alongside you know someone like a Mary Elizabeth Winstead, who you know I really liked a lot last year in Gemini Man, and in, in general very positive on her, uh, and and then other characters here and there, of course, who are maybe uh, actresses I was a little bit less familiar with, whether it's Journey Smollett Bell or. Um, I'm forgetting some of the other names that you've already mentioned. But the point is, I think that there are a couple characters that I was excited about. And so going into it, I was like, you know, art rated, you know, they're not being afraid necessarily to explore mature themes. But really, this movie's not about exploring mature themes. The R on this isn't, you know, isn't like a Logan where it's gonna it's gonna explore some heavy themes and you know, some intense violence has to go along with it. This is an R-rated film just for the sake that it can go all out on its violence, on its over-the-topness. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's also not where I think you necessarily find, you know, the best R-rated superhero movies. Like, I mean, I mentioned Logan. Of course, Deadpool is R is for its irreverence, not for its mature themes. But again, it's this isn't that's not necessarily what you get captured here in Birds of Prey either. And I think for the most part, that's a good thing. It's trying to be its own thing. It's very much driven by you know, Margot Robbie and Kathy Yan, who the, who's the director here. I think her really her big film debut director. She did. Um, she has directed. Uh, Dead, Dead Pigs, which debuted at uh, Sundance a few years ago, I think. She has like one other uh, film that's very small that that she's directed before. And so I was excited for it. It, it. It's very much a girl gang film, and we don't have too many of those. You maybe got a little bit of flavor of that with Ocean's 8, but it was a little less satisfying uh, probably than I would have liked it to be. And honestly, I think the main takeaway that I walked out of the theater with is that this movie is really loud. It's very, very over the top in terms of its violence. I thought that, you know, e each time each set piece happened, I thought the movie was about to end and it felt like then there was another big violent set piece. And really it just felt like the movie was a sensory overload uh, from that perspective. Uh, I, I haven't had that complaint about too many other uh, superhero movies in the past. So I am gonna be curious if, if maybe I'm becoming more sensitive to that moving forward. I, I don't want to grade this movie on a double standard 
uh, for that reason. And I want to acknowledge that, you know, there, I'm sure if I went back and rewatched some of the other superhero movies, whether they be in the DCU or in the MCU, I might feel the same now, but it, it just felt like my senses were constantly under assault in, in, in this film from a violence and, you know, musical perspective. The soundtrack felt really loud uh, to me and not always in sync. There are some great moments, I think, in the soundtrack, but not all of them necessarily work. I think that some of the characters, again, like I mentioned, I thought Margot Robbie and Mary Elizabeth Winstead were interesting. I would have either wanted more of a Mary Elizabeth Winstead and some of, honestly, some of the other characters, or just honestly just have less of them in this movie be more focused about Harley. I'm not sure. It just felt like they were trying to do so much, which maybe even is captured by the introduction that you gave just now. You're like, and elsewhere, and elsewhere, and elsewhere. It's just trying to juggle a lot of things in a runtime that wasn't necessarily long, but felt long because I think of everything that was happening. And so I think maybe a better juggling of its cast members could have been due. And then I think some of the standouts for the cast for me were, were you know, the villain here, Black Mask, Roman Sionis, played by Ewan McGregor. I think he is very over the top. Talk about, you know, scenery chewing roles here for him, as well as Chris Messina, who I did not realize was in this cast until I walked into the movie theater, who plays Victor Zaz, who I think is also a really interesting character, if a bit one-dimensional, as, you know, many villains uh, in comic book movies are. I think that's no exception here. And so, overall, the performances here, I think, were good. But when I walked out of the theater, I just couldn't help but feel like the movie was less than the sum of its parts. And I'm trying to, I've been trying to put my finger on that since since then. Yeah, I think I'm definitely the most positive here of anyone. I think this movie is a lot of fun. And I think that for me, this is the first great movie that is in the DCEU. Um, I, the only other one that I would consider even good for me is Wonder Woman. Um, and it's... I don't I don't want to, you know, make any conclusions, but I'm talking about the two movies that are directed by women and starring, you know, females like, you know, again, make the draw your own conclusions from that. But um, I think this movie is even a step above Wonder Woman, which I think, you know, was crippled by a, a pretty weak ending to the movie. Um, and, and Scott, I think like uh, it's interesting to hear some of your critiques, because I think that a lot of the some of the things you're critiquing are a lot of the things that I liked about this movie. Um which is the over-the-topness, which is the fact that it doesn't try to do anything meaningful really whatsoever uh, and, and have any sort of, um, you know, deep themes going on here. I just don't think that's what this character of Harley Quinn is about. Like, I I told you, I've told you, Scott, I've been watching a little bit of the Harley Quinn animated series. I don't know if you've, if either of y'all have seen it yet, but um, it's definitely like in the same aesthetic as as this uh, movie is and, and very, you know, R-rated and, just fun. Um, and so that's what I wanted from the movie. And that's what I got from the movie. I think that my problem with DC, the DCEU, a lot of the movies has been number one, that they take themselves way too seriously when they don't have the script to pull off the, you know, like deep theme, deep themes and, and darkness, like Christopher Nolan was able to do because he had, he had the scripts to do it. Um, but like movies like, you know, like man of steel uh, just doesn't have a good enough script to pull that off. That's not a problem here because they're not going for that again. They're they're just going for you know an explosion of of action and fun. Um, and the other thing is that the the movies don't really leave any sort of lasting impact. There's no distinctive style in the movies. They're just kind of anonymous. Um, and that's also not a problem with um, with with Birds of Prey. Like I think that 
the aesthetic of this movie that I talked about a little bit in the intro there really sticks with you. And the way that the action scenes are choreographed, I think is, is awesome. I mean, there's some, some really visually inventive action scenes in the movie that I enjoyed a lot. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about some of those. Um, but I also think the characters are great. I, I definitely agree that uh, my, maybe the one, the one major weak spot that I would point to is the development with some of the supporting characters, particularly Huntress, um, but I also think that for me, I looked at this movie kind of as setting up what will hopefully be a series to come or hopefully more of these characters to come. And so I think it's necessarily a little bit messy in order to give us like sort of the origin story for all of these characters and get all of them together. Um, and that doesn't excuse it, but um, that, that is kind of how I look at those issues that I, maybe I had with character development. But yeah, this movie is exactly what I wanted it to be. Uh, and it, I think exactly what the DCEU has been needing to do, which is just go out there and make a good movie. Don't care about connecting it to the universe. This movie isn't connected to the DCEU at all. I mean, like it's part of the DCEU, but it's really not connected to the to the extended universe at all. Um, it's just focused on being its own thing, establishing its own character and vibe. And that's what a lot of the early Marvel and MCU movies were able to do, I think, as well. Like that they left the whole, you know, extended universe and cinematic universe aspects to like the post credits scene, connecting things there. They were more focused on establishing these characters from the get go with, you know, Iron, Iron Man and Thor and Captain America, First Avenger. All of those movies were, were sort of standalone origin stories. And I think that's what DC needs to start doing. And that's what this movie and even Shazam to an extent, like I just think Shazam is okay. Um, but I think it was a step in the right direction in terms of the type of movie that they need to be making again, not w without all of these extenuating connections to the extended universe. <coughs> so yeah, I think this movie's great. I, I really had a good time with it. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if I totally understand the point around here about this being like a standalone story. Yes. It's not created to, other movies, but I mean, the sin of it, this movie's one of its sins is the same sin from Justice League is that it's trying to create origin stories for five different characters at the same time. Yes, the movie certainly maybe holds together internally better than, than Justice League does. I'm not, I'm not trying to say Justice League is a better movie, but I do think that this this is not a standalone like movie. This is not a Harley Quinn origin story to the extent that it sounds like you're, at least for me, to the extent that you're you're describing it as such. And for me, it, it feels like, yes, it's absolutely kind of a, a popcorn flick. It doesn't it doesn't take itself too seriously, which was nice because even, you know, even a movie like Wonder Woman it still takes itself very seriously. And uh, it, it was really having a hard time uh, escaping from the trap that you felt in the rest of the DCEU. The style of the movie cer certainly stands out. And I think that is it is one of the more positive things. But that style just felt like a total sensory overload for me, which you know worked for the first hour and a half. But, you know, by the time the funhouse scene happens, I'm like, man, like how much more of this can there be? And then there's a whole chase scene. And then there's I do like the very final scene, actually. And we'll talk more about that later. But it just felt like a huge overload uh, of action and not balanced enough in terms of its pacing uh, for that. For me, it just, it just felt like a bit a bit of an overload. And also to that extent, I mean, you talk about the story not taking itself too seriously and things like that. I'd go a step further and say the story makes no sense whatsoever. I mean, I, I don't even understand yeah. what's going on here. N none of it ties together well. I don't even understand why certain characters even exist. Ali Wong's character, like I don't even know why this person's in this. Yeah, story. that makes very no random character. Whatsoever. I agree. Um, like completely <laughs> throw away. You think it's going to be an important like relationship uh, 
person or, or character developing piece for you know, Renee Montoya's character. But no, just abs absolutely nothing whatsoever from that. And so I, I think that it may be a step in the right direction. But I mean, this is this is a baby step more than a big step for me. Yeah, I mean, as a final point, I'll just before we move on, I'll just say that I think when I talk about it being a standalone movie, it's not trying to assemble major characters, at least in my in my opinion, like Justice League was or like the Avengers was. I, I see these people like Huntress and like Black Canary as more like, I don't know what Falcon or, or Bucky or someone was in, in the Avengers. Not not someone who's getting their own own origin story. Not someone who like we want to see a standalone Black Canary movie or a standalone Huntress movie or anything like that. Uh, and so I, I think it doesn't take as much to bring these characters together as it does with like a Justice League or with like an Avengers. And I think they did just rush Justice League. I think um, now they, well, they, you they let it breathe. Batman versus Superman, which sets up two of the characters for Justice League, but. Yeah, that is true. I have not and don't intend to anytime soon. But um, I think we can move on from that now and, and talk about uh, the cast here. And obviously, Scott, you mentioned Margot Robbie is back. This is the second time we've seen her uh, after Suicide Squad. Um, and of course, you know, Suicide Squad very poorly received. Uh, but I, th I do think Margot Robbie's performance, one of the best things about it and one of the things people liked about it. Um, Jay, was it one of the things that you really liked about this movie as well? It was, um, it, both in this movie and in Suicide Squad. I mean, you know, she, you know, plays the role, like, you know, well, like, you know, her crazy is just so, like, on display. Everything from, like, little twitches in her face to just the voice is, you know, like, really good. Um, I will say that I was a little bit kind of over the, the narration about 30 minutes into the movie where, you know, she's kind of, like, laying the groundwork, I guess, and, you know, to quote we said earlier, you know, try to juggle these five origin stories and you know somewhat unnatural like bringing together of these characters i wasn't a huge fan of that i don't i don't think i generally am a fan of like protagonist narration throughout a movie um but other than that you know like she you know again like plays the crazy really well and i thought you know her her fight scenes were really well choreographed and i can be like really nitpicky about that stuff and you know i had virtually nothing to complain about scott your thoughts yeah, like I said, I think Margot Robbie's great. I do think that she was better in Suicide Squad, though. I will say that, just because I think she was, maybe because, maybe because of the differentiation of the standout person in the cast so much. I don't know if she stands out as much, and I think part of it is, is one of the things that Jay is hitting at here, is that the, the voiceover narration and the explaining of the plot and the untrustworthiness of her narration, because that is part of her character. She's not, she's not totally with uh, reality, which, again, is, is part of it. But it feels at times where I'm not entirely sure what the movie is trying to do with the narration. Like, yes, something is being explained to me, but you also know that this is this is all just Harley's mind. Like, this is just something she is, it, she could just be entirely making this up. And so it just makes you, again, maybe it, it might be the point of the whole movie, right? But it just makes you question whether anything that's happening in this sort of narration, these performances is real. And, and, that, and, that, and I found that more bothersome than anything. And so I found that the fact that she was the central focus of the movie and she is such an unstable, character in at least in that in that way and and that was it felt like one of the central focuses of the film i think it took away a little bit uh, from the from the performance overall but that doesn't have anything to do with margot robbie's specific performance it's just the fact that the character the nature of the character i think did detract a little bit where she was more of a, a supporting role in suicide squad of course because with, with with will smith and maybe joel kinnaman being the sort of central roles there she did have the time to kind of spread her wings in a weird way spread her wings more in suicide squad and you get the flavor of harley quinn 
uh, more than an overdose, uh, so to speak. And, and that's one of the things that I think made her performance in Suicide Squad a little like work just a little bit better for me. Uh, and then overall, like I mentioned, the, the in terms of other characters surrounding her, I think that some of the moments with the supporting characters and the chemistry between them were some of the highlights as well. I think that most of this cast with Margot Robbie have, with maybe one or two exceptions, have really good chemistry and work really well together. Yeah, no, I, I really love Margot Robbie's performance here. I think that she pretty much nowadays can do no wrong. Um, and she, she, you know, she's played a lot of different roles over the past few years, and she's really just knocked all of them out of the park, I think. In terms of the voiceover narration, I think I mostly agree with y'all. I think that after a while, it did start to feel too exposition-y to me when there were like characters being introduced and she was explaining like, you know, who, who they were, explaining their whole backstory and stuff like that um, without showing us, uh, instead, instead of showing us, you know, telling us instead of showing us. Um, and I, I think, again, some of that probably is by necessity because there is so much that this movie needs to do with introducing characters that that is a uh, streamlined way of doing that. I also think it, it doesn't go badly. It doesn't mesh badly with the overall vibe of the movie, which is just kind of, again, over the top, you know, balls to the wall. Like they're just going to throw everything at you. I think that like voiceover narration goes, goes decently well along with that kind of vibe. So it probably didn't bother me as much as it would have in, in a different movie. Like if, if, you know, if it was in uh, Suicide Squad or something like that, again, that's taking it, or Aquaman, that's taking itself really seriously. Well, th let's think about the voiceover narration in Aquaman and how bad that was. Um, I was about to say so, that, yeah. I was like, well, they did have voiceover narration in Aquaman. Yeah, it was quite poor. Um, but yeah, that, but that's my point. It, it's, it's just, you know, it, it's fun to hear this character's perspective on things, too. And I think that speaks to, you know, how strong of a character Margot Robbie makes here. I think... There's a there's a there's a tendency for this character to verge on like annoying just because of the way that she talks and everything like that. But I think Margot Robbie is too good to let that happen, um, and so I think she creates a very lovable anti-hero. Right? Like again, it's it's walking a fine line because she is a, she is still a villain. She is um, she was the Joker's girlfriend, um, and I think there are times when you have to remind yourself of that a little bit, but also at the same time, kind of in the same way that Deadpool two gave us sort of an emotional subplot or whatever to where we could say, Hey, you know, this, this person is just misunderstood. Maybe they're not really a villain. Um, they're not really a bad person. Um, I think um, birds of prey gives you a very similar um, type of story here with what happens between Harley and uh, Cassandra Kane. Um, and so I, I enjoyed really every aspect of this performance and, um, I, I am glad that, that Margot Robbie came back for this movie because I know that there was some um, discussion about whether she would come back for Harley Quinn after how bad uh, Suicide Squad was and how poorly it was received and everything. Uh, but I'm glad she did. And I hope that um, this movie, I hope that this movie will springboard her into doing more Harley Quinn stuff because I don't think it's, uh, this is a whole soapbox that we probably don't need to get on onto, but I don't think that it is doing as poorly as the box office as some, uh, you know, attention grabbing tweets would necessarily suggest. But. Yeah. I, you know, we don't have to go totally down this front pole, but I told like it's underperforming at the box office relative to its expectations. But some of the tweets that I've seen about framing, especially this past weekend uh, of it's like 48, I think it dropped like 48%, which is, much better than average for a superhero film. Like yes. Weekend, um, have just been mind boggling to me. It's, it's like certain aspects of the industry want this movie to fail, which 
again, you can draw your own conclusions for what that might mean. Yeah, exactly. And that's actually what I'm going to be talking about in my newsletter article this week, I believe. But but yeah, no, I think that even talking about the projections, maybe the projections were setting it up to fail even from the beginning. But um, I mean, maybe, but those projections <laughs> are recorded by Warner Brothers, though. So I don't and like tracked yeah. by pre-sale tickets and things like that. So regardless, uh, let's move on and talk about the supporting cast. Um, obviously, you have the other birds of prey who I mentioned here, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, Journey Smollett Bell and Rosie Perez. Um, and also Ewan McGregor and Chris Messina as the villains. Uh, who stood out for you in the supporting cast? Jake. Well, I'm going to apologize. I also am not as familiar with the names as perhaps I should be. So I'm going to use uh, characters here. But um, I was a fan of Black Canary. That was one I actually thought was, I mean, it makes total sense that you're including her in a Birds of Prey. But when I heard that she was coming to the big screen in this format, I was skeptical. But I actually really enjoyed. And I did, of course, love Ewan McGregor. Um, you know, big fan of his since you guys brought me into the Star Wars world. Um, and overall, didn't think anyone was too lackluster. I did, you know, find the whole story of Cassandra Kane to be a bit weird. Um, and just to, just because you've given me a platform to speak on this, I will. As a big comic book fan, I, I can appreciate a good name drop here and there. I saw virtually no reason for this character to be called Cassandra Kane. If you guys, you know, for a little bit of background, you know, she, is either orphan or a Batgirl or, you know, just some other character with a much more interesting backstory um, than just pickpocket in foster care. And to me, like that was one thing that just the comic book side of me was kind of like, okay, but like, why did, you know, there was no real need to do that. And I don't need things to be, you know, totally comic book accurate. You know, if you want to create a show about the green arrow where he doesn't end up with black canary, like fine. But you know, th this just felt like completely unnecessary to, give her that name. I won't harp on that from, you know, any more time, but um, I think also, I think part of it was just, you know, her character wasn't exciting. So I was like, why did you even bother giving her the name Cassandra Kane? Yeah. I think the supporting cast in terms of the actual performances and the characters differs a little bit, you know, person by person. I think that in terms of performances, like I mentioned already earlier on, I think that you have some really good performances from the likes of Ewan McGregor, Chris Messina, Mary Lynn's Elizabeth Winstead for what they are given to do in the film. And then I think you have some people who maybe lag a little bit, particularly. And I think that that falls in, in the realm here of someone like a Rosie Perez, or, I mean, I, I don't know. I've never seen Ella J. Basco do anything else besides Cassandra Cain. So I don't have a real good marker there, but I think both of those characters are really weak. And I think that is, I did like Journey Smollett Bell as Black Canary. I have a real problem with something with a, character development that takes place for her towards the end of the movie, which I won't, we won't get into yet just because it is a spoiler. We can talk about later. But to me, again, it, it's a it's a bit of a mixed bag. And on paper, it just it just feels like for me that, that it should have worked a little bit better. But they're just not able to, for me, they're not able to create a compelling or engaging enough story around these characters, around the collection of these characters for me to feel invested in them outside of maybe again maybe besides like the villain here the roman Sionis, like i'm invested enough because of ewan mcgregor's performance and maybe that's just because of my familiarity with him for that reason and, and the same goes for chris messina as having watched a, a bunch of tv shows that he's been on over the years i'm i'm always intrigued when he's in something but for me i'm, I'm just not familiar enough with the supporting cast and the supporting cast is not given interesting enough characters to play with in my opinion for me to feel engaged with, okay, what's going to happen to Cassandra Kane? Like I, I just found 
her dynamic with Harley to me, that that's one of the ones I was alluding to earlier that just, I didn't really feel like it worked that well. I didn't really feel like their dynamic uh, was the best in the film and didn't really drive that excitement for me about like, how's this going to end up? Like, oh, you know, halfway through the movie, Harley screws her over. Well, you know, shocker, right? But I'm just like, I just didn't care that much that, that Harley had screwed her over at that point in the film. And so I think that that also rings true for, you know, some of the other ones and um, and some of the other like peripheral relationships that exist within the supporting cast. And to me, I just I just wanted a little bit more. And, and I lay the blame more on, you know, the screenwriting here and and the overall story that's being told more than more than on the individual performances. And that's because you have Harley, you know, doing these voiceover narrations, trying to introduce a lot of these characters, giving them a backstory. And it's very stylish. And, and I think on the surface that it works quite well, but it doesn't invest you enough in the characters. Like I wanted to care more about Mary Elizabeth Winstead's character, but the story just didn't get me there. It just didn't get me enough to get me there to care enough about, you know, Huntress. Like I know that I should, I know that I should based on what, you know, the backstory of this character, but I just don't get there. And so again, not just not coming up to the sum of its parts uh, in a lot of ways. And unfortunately I think it just might have to do with the expanse of the story being told or even if they are relatively minor characters and not some of the big hitters in the DC uh, universe. Yeah, I mean, I think I'll reserve judgment a little bit on Cassandra Kane until we see what they do with this character going forward. But um, I think I probably agree with y'all that like this move, this movie standing alone did not make me like super jazzed to see more of this character going forward. But um, I, again, I, I'll kind of reserve judgment on that. I think that I still like that angle of the story because of what it does for Harley's arc in the movie as well. Um, I, I do I like just don't think you, need all, you don't need all those characters to get that for out of Harley though is the thing that's that's what I'm trying to talk about I guess they, maybe that's what I'm trying to get to like yes you do get this development in Harley's arc and of course some of the supporting cast are are an integral part of that I just don't know if the if the full cast here is necessary and it's serving and to me it just ultimately was serving a different purpose um that maybe works as a as in a, in a fun element of it like you get this you get your girl gang together and in um, you beat up, you know, the, the toxic men uh, in, in Gotham. But uh, to me, it, it didn't work cohesively as a story. And I didn't feel like the payoff for Harley needed all the additional components that you're you know, kind of alluding to there. Yeah, I, I think that I think Cassandra Kane's character fills a necessary part uh, in, in Harley's life when she's still looking for a companion who... Uh, is not going to be super toxic like the Joker was and, you know, take all of the credit and everything like that. Um, and, you know, there's like the scenes of them like watching cartoons together and going to the store and stuff and really bonding. Uh, and, you know, I, I imagine that um, that Harley probably sees some of herself in, in the Cassandra Kane character. So I, I think that that character in particular does contribute to, to Harley's arc in a pretty essential way. I don't know about some of the other characters. I think if you're right there, but... Um, as far as the villain goes, I did like Ewan McGregor a lot. I think that he's totally on the same page with what type of movie this is, uh, which sometimes, you know, is not always the case with a big name actor or villain like this. Um, I like that he's doing an almost like comically bad or over the top, like American accent. Like it, 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 I, some people, I've seen some people like critiquing his accent and it seemed to me like he was almost doing it on purpose. Like it was almost like very rough around the edges on purpose just because it, it, you know, he, he's supposed to be like kind of a, he's, I mean, he's, he's, he's a comical character. Yeah. yeah. He's a comical character. Um, and yeah, I like the, you know, he's, he's has fragile masculinity and that like he's set up as being another like notorious Gotham villain, just like the Joker. 
but underneath the surface, he's really not. Um, and as far as the other characters go, I definitely wanted more of Mary Elizabeth Winstead. I'm a fan of hers. Um, I don't think they did enough with her character here. That said, there are some nice moments. Like I, I like the whole recurring gag about how everyone knows her as the, uh, what is it? The like, um, archery killer it's not the crossbow killer yeah um even though she is trying to go by the name huntress or whatever i like that they kind of poke fun at her character through that and the fact that you know she's she's you know walking around like she's all cool and badass and like thinks of herself as the huntress you know she has this cool name whatever but like the rest of the world hasn't caught up to her view of herself yet and they're still you know on oh the crossbow killer and um, and, but then, uh, you know, I like how over the course of the movie, you know, you see the other birds of prey, you see their view of her, you know, adapt and, and eventually Harley is like, Oh man, like, you're so cool. You're like the coolest person or whatever, which, uh, I, I like that element too. And yeah, I think journey Smollett bell is good as, as black canary. I like that. She's getting a big role like this. She's someone who has been around for a while. Um, but not necessarily in high profile projects like this. Um, and I think that she justifies her inclusion in this cast here with her uh, performance and another character that I hope we will see more of going. Forward. Yeah, I think overall, I I really wished that if, you know if you had to cut if you had to cut one or two, I would I would have kept. Uh, I, I think that one of the things earlier, I guess, just to clarify, I do think that Cassandra Kane is an important character for Harley's development. To Jay's point, maybe, and again, knowing enough about the name, not as much as Jay definitely, but enough. To recognize the name, I was wondering, like, why, why is, why is, does this need to be Cassandra Kane? And maybe that'll be answered in, in a future, in a, you know, a future development, whether that's a TV show, whether that's a movie, whatever it might be. Um, but I think you definitely need to keep that character in whatever form you decide. I think that you should definitely keep the Black Canary character, the Journey uh, Small, uh, yeah, Journey Small character. And then to me, like, there's no need for for the Montoya character, for Rosie Perez's character. If you cut that out of the movie, I don't think you lose that much. I also think that if push came to shove, as much as I want Mary Elizabeth Winstead in, you know, in these movies, she would also be the next one to cut for me just because I don't think this character is given the justice it's due. And I'm just talking about what's given on screen. I think that for the central narrative of Harley, what you needed uh, for this film to be tighter and, and maybe have a little bit more time to explore these different elements and feel like it's just more of a cohesive unit is to take two or three here and dive a little bit deeper and, and spend a little bit more time with those characters. So you have the Harley and uh, Cassandra Kane relationship. And then you also have, you know, Black Canary uh, trying to liberate herself from Roman Sionis as well. And, and sort of the, the role that she has had underneath him uh, in, at, at his club for a while. I think there's a lot of opportunity there. Now, if you feel comfortable then adding back in that Huntress character and giving it a little bit more development, I'm all for it. I'm, I love Mary, Mary Elizabeth Winston. I'm always excited about the projects that she's in. But that's kind of how I would have viewed it. Because I just felt like, again, it, the it, it could have summed up to something greater with a little bit more attention to detail around certain parts of it. Uh, okay, speaking of attention to detail, I do want to talk about the action scenes because I think a lot of them are quite good and quite different than we've seen in a lot of the DCEU and maybe even in recent comic book movies in general. Um, Jay, what stood out to you about the action sequences? Were there any particular scenes that uh, made an impact with you? I mean, it earned its R rating, uh, you know, just to harp on what everyone, including you guys, have been saying. Um, the scene where she breaks into the GCPD and uh, yes. essentially goes on her, you know, coke-fueled rampage, uh, that was really fun for me. 
Um, contrary to Scott, I actually really did enjoy the fun house scene. And I didn't think that the action sequences uh, or even the music piled on too much. I think it was a, maybe just a little bit, but I think I was less uh, negative on that, Scott, than maybe you were. Um, yeah, watching, you know, Harley, uh, you know, rampage through GCPD with a baseball bat. Uh, <laughs> pretty well choreographed fight again, I might add. I, I feel like I'm like annoyingly picky about these things and I'm like, oh, that like looks so bad. But I actually thought, you know, almost every swing was like like really well done. Um, I liked that it didn't jump cut a lot. You know, it, it, it was fun. Yeah, so I think some of the big set pieces, you talk about the GCPD, you talk about the fun house, you know, as probably the two biggest set pieces of the film. I mean, correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong and, and forgetting one of the big ones. But for me, it just felt like one of those things is that it's not the big set pieces that I had a problem with. It's the exhaustion that I felt going into the, especially the funhouse scene from all the little, like the little action sequences that you get in between the big ones. For me, that, that's what talking about the pacing there. That's where it gets exhausting because I agree. The choreography in these scenes, I think it works really well. I, again, maybe there are some elements of the funhouse scene that, that don't work for me. I, I think it goes on for a little bit too long. Uh, and again, maybe that's, again, that might just be the exhaustion that I was feeling at that point. I liked the the concept and idea of it, but it was, uh, essentially, it felt like me, them bouncing around some trampolines and some bowling pins for 15 minutes, just hitting people with hammers. Like, it just felt like the same thing for 10 or 15 minutes. And that's why I think it just stretched on for a little bit too long, because it's a very creative, inventive, and well-choreographed idea. It just, again, felt like it went on for a little bit too long. The GCPD was one that definitely stuck out for me. If I had to pick one of the action scenes or one of the big set pieces that, that worked for me, that would probably be the one that, that worked the best, including not just the one uh, kind of in the evidence chamber where she is up against all these uh, guys breaking in and does have, you know, talked about the Coke-fueled rampage, but also going in with the with the she, you know, the shotgun with the bean bags. I thought that was yes. one of the really well-designed uh, scenes and I was really frustrated when they interrupted that scene at the very end uh, kind of w with a flashback of some sort she's like oh I forgot to tell you this thing it just felt like it jumped around so much and that's one of the things that I'll get into now I know we're not talking about the full story yet but the construction of the story itself at times also was something that I found you know exhausting and, and, and frustrating because just randomly you start flashing back to certain things and, and in theory it should work around like oh here's this context that you need for this thing that's about to happen but for me, it just uh, it felt like it was unthoughtfully put together, which I know it was not. Like, of course, it was not not thought out. It just felt it ended up feeling that way in the construction of its story and the timing that it chose to take certain, um, you know, make certain footnotes or or dive back into a certain character's history and certain things like that. That I felt that that again kind of wore me down a little bit over time. And uh, it wasn't necessarily the jump cuts that you're talking about here in terms of the way that a certain scene was edited. But the way that the story pieces were edited together at a more macro scale, I felt like, again, was a little bit lackluster. But on the whole, again, I think the big set pieces, I think they work really well for the most part. I think they're well choreographed. That's when the soundtrack really works for me. There's other, other parts of the movie uh, where I felt like it stood out in a, not, in a less positive way. I don't want to say a super negative way, but a less positive way to a dozen of the big scenes. Um, and then after the funhouse scene, uh, the, the action chase car scene that follows... I think that I could have done without that scene or again, maybe cutting down the funhouse scene to, to better integrate that. It just felt like the big set pieces happened and all of a sudden now I have to go on, you know, a car chase scene for another five to 10 minutes. Uh, it, again, just felt like something was a little bit off there. Yeah. I don't, I did not get the feeling of exhaustion that you had. I thought there were enough moments of, to breathe in there in the story and, and scenes between a couple of characters, um, you know, just talking that, that, 
gave me enough of a breather. Uh, I, I think I would piggyback on what y'all were saying. I really like the scenes that y'all have mentioned, particularly that in the GCPD with the whatever the, I mean, bean, you said bean bags are like gas canisters. The, the, yeah, it's whatever, a bunch of different things. Yeah. Whatever it creates visually is, is awesome. Like with all of the different colored gas, you know, flying around while she's shooting people, the confetti, like <laughs> destroying people with like confetti canisters is like, is very creative. I like that a lot. Um, and again, matches the vibe of the movie, the, the vibe that I wanted from this movie, as does, I think the funhouse sequence, like when, when they entered the funhouse, you know, it's pretty near the end of the movie. I was like, sure, of course. Why? Of course there's a funhouse sequence in this movie. Why wouldn't there be? Um, and I, I had a good time with that sequence. It didn't get too repetitive for me. Uh, in general, I think that the action sequences, I, I do tend to get bored a lot of times with, with action sequences in superhero movies because I think they can feel the same. But there was always something creative going on in these action sequences that um, kept me engaged. Of course, the funhouse sequence, we also get, uh, you know, you're talking about the, the music. We get Margot Robbie roller skating to Barracuda by Heart. Second time that we've seen her skating to that song in a motion picture before. So, um, yeah, she's two for two when she skates to that song. So um, <laughs> good for her. But um, yeah. I think the I think the soundtrack is really good. And um, again, some of the some of the needle drops are, are pretty satisfying in the, uh, the soundtrack. And uh I think again goes well. It meshes well with the like sort of Tarantino style action, uh, which is what again absolutely what I wanted from this movie. I think that um, a lot of the reason that I enjoyed this movie is just because it lived up to the expectations that I had and exactly what I wanted the movie to be. And it doesn't try to do anything more than that in terms of like the bullseye for what this movie is aiming for. I think it gets pretty close to it. Okay, last point to talk about is the story. Scott, you, you talked a little bit about some of your issues with the way it was constructed. I'll just say I think that um, flashbacks didn't bother me as much. Um, I do think that I had some problems with the sort of MacGuffin-y nature of, of the plot and the fact that, oh, there's this diamond and yeah. everybody wants this diamond and we don't we don't really know why they want this diamond except that it's, you know, a diamond that's worth a lot of money. But the real reason that it's part of the plot is so that all of these characters can get together. Um, and that's that's really the purpose of introducing this sort of uh, element into the story. And, and it, it's pretty clear the superficial nature of, of that part of the story. Um, well, I think but, I think it's damning in of itself there is that the actual reason why the diamond's valuable is that it has the account numbers for the Bertinelli's that has yeah. the Bertinelli fortune. It's not the fact that the diamond itself is valuable. Yeah. Right. But uh, again, and that and that's just a way to draw in another character. I mean, I won't, I won't say anything else other than that, but that's that's a way to get another character connected to the story. Again, it's it's introduced solely for the purpose of getting all of the characters together and. I mean, I guess you kind of have to do that in a movie like this, but uh, I, w I was getting some Rise of Skywalker vibes from that part of the plot for sure. Uh, but other than that, I think I, I enjoyed the story for the most part. Um, again, I didn't want anything super labyrinthine or deep um, like like we've had in some other DC um, EU movies. And so I think it delivered on that. Jay, your your thoughts on the plot? Pretty much in agreement with you guys and that, you know, yeah, I think they was trying to do a little too much and tying, you know, five stories, you know, naturally together. Like it, you know, it, it didn't feel like it was necessary. And uh, again, just to like piggyback off what you said again, you know, it, um, like you could do without one or two probably. Scott, anything else to add? 
Yeah, I don't know if I have too much else to add because my other major problem with the plot is exactly what you describe here. The whole this whole plot related to Cassandra Kane swallowing this diamond uh, when she gets arrested is, <laughs> is like that, that drive. I mean, you think about that, that's the driver of the plot for like two thirds of the film. Obviously, the opening part of the film is this breakup, learning about this breakup with Joker. So I shouldn't say Joker with the Joker as a different Joker. Um, and and so I think that it's to me it just felt like. I, again, I just didn't necessarily need this plot element to get the things that I need to have. Because it, it's not like, yes, Roman Sianus wants the diamond, etc. But there is this dynamic between him and Harley and him and Black Canary and, you know, so on and so forth that exists without, you know, this diamond. It doesn't, again, like you said, it's it's a MacGuffin. And, and it's not like this is the only movie in history that has a MacGuffin. And you talk about Rise of Skywalker vibes, you know. I'm sure we could go if we looked at the at the release list for the movies last year. You know, it, it wouldn't be the only I mean, Rise of Skywalker wouldn't be the only one with a MacGuffin problem, and and so it, I don't want to like you know cast this to the you know put, you know put this to the sword for having a MacGuffin issue. But I just think again, it, there are other elements of it that go along with the you know this diamond that I think contribute and and stack on top of it and compound uh, the problem of feeling like a lot of parts of this movie just aren't necessary from a plot component from a story component. Uh, and by the time, you know, for you know, laying aside kind of the macro level details here, a lot of the micro level details to me didn't make didn't make as much sense as you to think either. Like, why is Victor's ass not killed all these people already? <laughs> like, like he just has so many opportunities over the course of the film to just not make this an issue. Like he he's with I can't, I can't remember like Journey Smollett Bell's character, uh, Black Canary. Like he's with her. Like why does why does she, why is she even alive still after he he learns these you know that she's helping. Um, you know, Harley or whoever it was, or Montoya, I guess it was Montoya, actually. Uh, like, why doesn't he kill her immediately? Like, I don't understand. Like, it just seems so obvious to me that, that especially given this character's nature to physically harm people and kill people and keep track of all the people that he kills with the scars on his on his body. Like, why isn't he immediately doing that? It feels so out of sync with this character to not immediately, you know, kill it. Little things like that, as an example, uh, don't make as much sense to me either. So it's not just, again, the macro construction of the story uh, or certain parts of the story, I should say. I don't, I don't want to say the whole the whole story, but certain parts of the story uh, don't work together. I also think some of there are some plot holes along the way as well. Yeah, uh, the last thing I'll say is that with regards to the diamond, <laughs> I did like that. So, like when when Cassandra Kane swallows the diamond, I was like, oh, here we go. We're going to get some real top gross out humor here. But I they didn't lean into it too heavily, which I appreciated because I think Deadpool probably would have just gone over the top and had us like watch crap spewing everywhere and everything. You know, that would have been what would have happened in Deadpool. So I. I appreciated that they didn't lean too heavily into that, even though it was an R-rated movie. You know, they could have they could have gone all the way with it. I guess. Well, you could have got you could get that in a PG thirteen movie, though. I don't think that that would necessarily potentially. Yeah, Fast Five, everyone. Well, spoilers. I haven't seen that one. Oh <laughs> come on! It's been like ten years. I don't care about spoilers for the Fast and Furious franchise. Uh, okay, guys, I think we can uh, just about wrap things up now. Uh, let's uh, start by talking about our favorite scene or moment from the movie, Jay. Favorite scene or uh, Let's go with the Cokefield Rampage. Um, you know, I, I've already described all the reasons why I thought it was a lot of fun. Um, I did find the end scene pretty satisfying too. Um, I won't touch on that too much as I think one of you is about to. Um, but I, I also really did enjoy that. I kind of do wish we had, you know, kept uh, Ewan McGregor around. Uh, I don't really know how he would have factored into a sequel, maybe teaming up with another toxic male baddie from Gotham trying to take down Harley down the road. Who's to say? I'll withhold anything else uh, in case you want to touch on that. 
Yeah, no, for me, there's two that I want to call out. One as an honorable mention of sorts, just because we haven't talked about it yet, and I do want to get some time, is that I love Bruce the Hyena. I just think he's great. It made me so happy that he didn't actually die at the end of the movie. Uh, the Honestly, some of my favorite scenes of, of, of Harley, and particularly Margaret Rose is just her spending time with Bruce, and I wanted more of that. I'm sure incredibly expensive uh, CGI there, and they were trying to make this on a bit of a tighter budget, so that's probably the reason why they... Uh, exit, exited that character stage left halfway through the movie, but then brought it back at the end. Uh, but that, yeah, that was a that was a big hat for me. But for me, you know, as tired as I was by the end of the film and these sort of back to back action sequences and building uh, building set pieces towards the end, the final board, I guess it was like on a boardwalk or whatever, where stalking around. And this is very spoilery, uh, by the way. Uh, but like kind of Margaret, like essentially Roman Sionis has kidnapped. Sandra Kane to get his diamond back at this point. And she's kind of, he's kind of holding her hostage and Harley's trying to track them down. And she misses with her one bullet that she has left and shoots one of the statues instead of Roman Sionis. And uh, there's this last moment where, you know, you think everyone's screwed here, but Cassandra Kane picks his pocket, takes out the grenade pin from, or actually it might've been her own pocket. I can't remember, but drops, I think drops the grenade in his pocket, pulls the pin and then Harley kicks him over the side and he blows up in midair, which I just thought was, uh, yeah, the, the best scene in the movie. That was the best moment. Uh, as much as it was sad to see you and McGregor go like that, uh, he definitely got done dirty in that scene. But I think that uh, it was a very satisfying conclusion to the movie. If we're talking about the very last scene in the movie, it was not necessary whatsoever. It could have completely cut the very last scene. But that was a really satisfying moment. Well, maybe I'll push back on you then because uh, you know you liked Bruce the hyena. My, I, I have to. We have to give a shout out to the egg sandwich because it was also a highlight of this movie for me. Um, it. First of all, looks delicious when they're when they're cooking it. Um, I hated that chase looks, scene at the beginning of the movie. Uh, I thought it was great. Um, I really like Harley Harley trying to protect her egg sandwich, and then again it comes back around at the very end, right, with Cassandra and Harley sort of peeling away, and Cassandra reveals that she has two egg sandwiches here, making up for the fact that um, that Renee Montoya basically ruined um, Harley's first egg sandwich earlier in the movie. Uh, I thought that that was a fun gag. So I'll go with that, even though, you know, I, I would obviously love a lot of the action sequences. Again, maybe hate was too strong of a word for that. Really. Again, just a scene that lasted too long. Uh, okay, so let's, uh, before we do the scores, I do want to ask, uh, where does this rank in the DCEU for you? I mean, you don't have to say your full rankings, but a general range maybe of where this is. Uh, I think it sits third. I won't do the whole thing, but I think it sits for me behind Wonder Woman and Shazam. I actually really like Shazam. I, I was surprised how low you were on it, Scott Harvey, but that that's okay. We, we can discuss that off off mic. It was a sitcom. It was a this lot of fun. It didn't take itself too seriously, and it was a good standalone film that didn't tie into their greater universe until like the post credit scene. I enjoyed it. I don't know how you can make you can level sitcom at it, Scott, when you're excited. You're most excited about WandaVision. I mean, let me put it this way: it was a ba- it was a it was a bad it was a bad sitcom. It was a Chuck Lorre two and a half men sitcom. That's what Shazam was. The jokes were okay, Scott. Your your ranking? Yeah, I don't even know how. I I almost feel like I need to rewatch some of them to get a proper ranking. But I will agree with Jay that I think that both Wonder Woman and Shazam are better than this film. I don't, I'm not sure where it's going to sit in the grand scheme of things with, I mean, it's definitely above Suicide Squad and Justice League. I am someone who does like Batman versus Superman more than others. 
Uh, but I think it's going to be the ultimate edition. You should specify. Oh yeah, the three-hour version, not the two and a half-hour version. Of course, um, because there's some key plot details left out in those thirty minutes they cut for the theatrical version, uh, which alleviated a lot of <laughs> a lot of my confusion with the plot, to be honest. Um, but yeah, so it's some it, it's 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 comfortably in the middle, which unfortunately is is probably below average uh, for movie franchises. Y'all are crazy. This is easily number one. Um, I, I put it above Wonder Woman. Uh, Shazam being a, a very weak number three, I, I guess I would have to say. Um, I mean, the villain was terrible in that movie. Um, was terrible in this one. In the same by the same standard. No, I enjoyed. Uh, I, mean, I enjoyed Roman Sionis, but I'm just saying in terms of character wise, Mark Strong's villain in Shazam is just as one dimensional as Roman Sionis is. Uh, I don't think I agree with that, but anyway, we don't need to relitigate that. Um, I think this is this is number one for me. Uh, it's above Wonder Woman, and the rest of them I think are just average to bad. You can kind of just mix them all together. I really don't care so much about the rankings at that point. But um, let's put a score on it, Jay. Six point seven. Don't ask me to justify. I can't. <laughs> I don't Worse have a spreadsheet of my Star scores up. <laughs> I don't have a spreadsheet of my scores up. Six point seven. Worse than Attack of the Clones. Uh, okay, you're Scott. Crazy. That's what that's what you're saying. No, 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 I'm not. Am I? See, I don't yes, have my spreadsheet. Are. Go away. I, I'm not. This doesn't cross over. This is a superhero movie, not a like, Star Wars. I'm not, I'm not saying that birds are. It's weird to compare across franchises like this, and I don't like this. But I, I'm not saying it's worse than Attack of the Clones, but it's only a little bit better than it, in my opinion. It's a five point three. E- even as we talk about some of the flaws, I and I think there are flaws. Like I think that. Um, this movie again is exactly what I wanted. I, I wasn't looking for, you know, some super cohesive plot. Uh, I just wanted to have a good time. I wanted some fun action sequences. I wanted fun characters and a good aesthetic and I got all of those things. So 7.9. This was a really fun movie. Okay. Uh, that concludes our review of birds of prey. When we come back after the break, we will get to some news items that we've missed over the past few weeks. There's some big cut casting, uh, news to talk about for several movies, as well as, a couple of trailers to discuss. So we will be right back with those. Welcome back to this episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, a bunch of news items to get to. Uh, before we conclude today, it, it is the post-Oscars period, so it seems like the studios are dumping a lot of stuff. Looking forward to 2020 now. Um, starting with the test footage from The Batman. This is, of course, Matt Reeves's uh, new Batman movie starring Robert Pattinson, among others. Uh, we got our first look at uh, Pattinson himself in the bat suit. Really, not, not much to this footage, just sort of a close-up of his face um and, and in the bat suit you, you you get an idea for what the bat suit is going to look like um i don't have much of an opinion on this just because it's just you know again it's it's pretty insubstantial but uh jay do you have any does, does this get you more excited for this movie if you're not already you know over the moon for it yeah you're crazy <laughs> i have so many thoughts on this um it it looked really cool um and the test footage you know it, it got me pretty excited at least about the suit um, it felt very like Arkham game ish. Um, we can talk about the the logo, the emblem in a bit. Um, but yeah, like it, I really need to see the ears, right? Uh, I, I'm so curious as to how tall they are. Um, I, I kind of get this weird feeling they're going to be tall. Um, 
I'm thinking like, you know, Detective Comics number one, like, you know, several inches, but we'll, we'll see. Um, I thought, you know, it was only a, a camera test, right? So I wasn't, you know, thinking too much about how he looked. I thought, you know, he, he looked pretty like good. Like, I mean, again, it was, it was what, three seconds of a close up of his face, but I'm excited about the suit. And this makes me more Scott. over the moon. How about that? Good. Uh, Scott, any thoughts on this? Yeah, I, I think I had similar thoughts to what Jay was describing here. But one of the things I will say that I don't know if you guys just forgot to turn the audio on, but Michael Giacchino's score uh, on this is really good. Like, go, if you didn't listen to it with the volume on, go back and listen to it because I imagine that's going to be one of the, the key uh, thematic elements of of the music we hear for for Batman for our paths as Batman. So I was really interested in that. I like Jay. I'm also curious how tall the ears are going to be. I don't have an opinion based on what comic it, it might look like. It's probably not going to be as short as say a uh, Christian Bale or uh, Ben Affleck Batman, which I think both had pretty short ears, but probably will be a little bit taller, but I think, I don't think it'll be too crazy. I just think at some point it looks a little silly. If you get it too big in, in sort of a live action uh, setting at the very least, but that's just my opinion. We'll see. We'll see where that goes. You talk, you talk about the emblem. Jay, that was definitely one of the things that I thought uh, was the most interesting part. And I did a little bit of research on it and apparently it's supposed to, the emblem is supposed to be made out of the gun uh, parts of the gun that killed his parents, which I think uh, probably tells you something interesting about uh, about his motivations and in, in the story. Again, nothing necessarily new there, but I think it, it's trying to create this sort of vision for a very grounded Batman, especially since the fact that this is supposed to be what his like second year being the Batman. He's supposed to be a really new Batman, and and this is someone who's still maybe like in Batman Begins, you know, a, a Batman that's just trying to find what his purpose is and what the, what the meaning is for what he's doing uh, beyond, of course, just like you know being a vigilante and, and trying to um, you know bring criminals to justice and whatever the story may entail. I, I hope it isn't sort of uh, I hope it doesn't completely explore the origin stories that it feels like we've had like 5,000 times in Batman movies, but a theme of trying to understand and connect your origin to where you're at, I think could definitely be something that is, uh, could be done well. And I would look forward to, uh, to having explored, even if it's not, and hopefully not the central element of the, of the movie. As long as, to me, if we don't see Thomas and Martha Wayne get shot in the alley again, I, I think I'll consider that a successful non-origin story. I mean, crazy. Like, it doesn't even have to be a Batman origin story these days to, to see that scene because we saw it in freaking Joker. Right? Yeah, I know. And that was that was that uh, drove me. That made me so mad. Um, yeah. But <laughs> I don't need to go down that road again. Um, yeah, I, I'm excited. You know, like you said, I've also you know heard it'll be like a year two kind of thing. Really excited to see, you know his take on this and yeah, you know, this, this was a good way to get me excited and the score, you know, to your point uh, was absolutely amazing. Yeah, no, I'm excited for this. And yeah, I, I would be surprised if they did a retread of the origin story, given that that seems to be everyone's complaint about Batman movies is that we don't need to see his parents getting killed again. Like, but then why, nevertheless, do we we seeing st it? <laughs> why did they put it in freaking Joker? Then? Oh no. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I mean, it also, it also would be crazy with the cast that they have to do an origin story because they have about 10 different villains. It feels like, I mean, they have Paul Dano as the Riddler. They have Zoe Kravitz as Catwoman. I mean, unclear whether that would be a villain or an anti-hero kind of thing. They have what, um, penguin. Yeah. they have, yeah, they have Colin Farrell who I'm really excited about as the penguin. They, this isn't an anti-hero part, but I mean, they have anti Andy circus playing Alfred. Like they have such an incredible cast and just to retread uh, a story that's been told, you know, not to exaggerate, but has been told probably four or five times. Um, you know, in in different Batman movies, I think that Matt Reeves would be crazy, and I trust Matt Reeves a lot 
uh, a lot more than to retread that ground as, as someone who you know is a writer director uh, and who writes his own stories. Where they could just you know mess around with the timelines like Greta Gerwig did with Little Women. I mean that movie was, that story was told eight times, but she still was able to get a good movie out of it. But uh, I don't yeah, think it, that it would feels work, a little bit different. I, I I take your yes, point. It's definitely different. <laughs> feels a little bit different there, especially because again with all these villains, with, I don't know if this is actually going to be the direction it ends up going. But if they are adapting comic book stories, there's a lot of rumors around it being like the Long Halloween and, and actually a, a story that's set over multiple movies. Which I have my own thoughts about whether that's a good idea or whether they should just make a standalone movie that works. Yeah. All right, Scott, some casting news to talk about. We had sort of a big dump in terms of casting news. A lot of um, stuff getting getting put out there by the studios. First, the Baccarat Machine, which is this sort of gambling drama starring Aquafina about a Chinese uh, gambler who teams up with a legendary poker player. Uh, Aquafina was announced as the star of that movie. We have The Lost Daughter, which is going to be Maggie Gyllenhaal's uh, directorial debut based on a novel. Uh, and as far as cast members there, we have Olivia Coleman, Dakota Johnson, Jesse Buckley, and Mr. Maggie Gyllenhaal, Peter Sarsgaard. Uh, and finally, uh, David O. Russell's new movie. This is David O. Russell of The Fighter and Silver Linings Playbook and Three Kings fame. Um, his new movie, which is as of yet untitled, and I don't think we even know plot for it, um, but already building quite a, a level of excitement by getting uh, Christian Bale, Margot Robbie, and Michael B. Jordan attached to this thing. Um, Scott, what stands out to you among all of this uh, casting news? Yeah, I mean, honestly, all three of them, huge for me. I, I think just by the nature of my own affinities, the David O. Russell one is probably the one I'm most excited about. I mean, Silver Linings Playbook still, you know, one of my favorite movies up there of all time with, with what Jennifer Lawrence and Bradley Cooper and the whole supporting cast were able to do with that in David O'Russell's script. I think David O'Russell's fallen off a little bit since then. For me, I didn't enjoy American Hustle as much. Did he also do Joy? He did do Joy as yeah. well. Yeah, right. but, Joy was his last movie, I believe. Yeah, that's what I think. That's what I, that's what I thought too. Uh, I didn't enjoy either of those movies, and I really so I really hope that this movie can be a return to form because again, when when I think he's clicking, you know, he's able to get cast a cast that can also elevate the material that he writes, and so when those two things combined. I mean, it's a recipe for real success. And when you have a cast like Marco Robbie, Christian Bale, Michael B. Jordan, I mean, music to my ears, absolute music to my ears in terms of what that is ultimately able to accomplish. Again, like you said, we don't know really anything about the plot, which is of course going to matter because on paper, American Hustle should have been something that I enjoyed a lot. But again, just something about it just didn't, didn't come together, didn't click for me as much as I would have hoped. Uh, and then in terms of the other thing that, that was really for me, the one that was the biggest highlight was the Baccarat machine. So getting Aquafina's, understanding what Aquafina's you know, next project is going to be. I really liked Molly's game more than Nissan. Maybe it was good from back in, in the beginning of 2018 into 2017. It was a movie that, you know, I really loved the premise of it. There were parts of it that I found super interesting. The whole gambling and poker element to it, I thought worked really well. But then little pieces here and there that, that made it a little bit less cohesive in terms of its peripheral plot. Um, and so to get another you know, gambling type movie uh, kind of in a casino, again, playing back right, different than poker, obviously, but having that context, you know, having Aquafina uh, be the lead in it, I think it might've been Jeff Snyder at, over at Collider saying that he really could use this as, this might be her, can you ever forgive me role? Uh, someone that, that really brings her dramatic claim. Does it, is it, is it going to win her an Oscar? Who knows, right? But it's going to give her that notoriety that even you would have thought the farewell would have given her, but um, maybe didn't ultimately get recognized as much as it, as it should have. And so with that piece in, in being a little bit more quote unquote mainstream than the farewell, my <coughs> farewell did extremely well for an independent movie. 
um, that, that could be a big a big moment for Aquafina's career and continuing the the trajectory that she started with something like The Farewell. Um, so that, I'm really excited about that because I think that those types of movies are very up my alley. I'm really intrigued to see who they who they uh, have play Phil Ivy. I mean, I remember I was someone who watched the World Series of Poker when I was growing up. I really enjoyed watching that. And Phil Ivy was uh, someone who was, you know, I constantly like I know who that is. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see who they have play uh, play that play that role, and uh, ultimately what this uh, what the story ends up developing and turning out to be. It's one that I'm really excited for. Yeah, I mean, I would have thought that the farewell would have been Aquafina's. Can you ever forgive me if it was gonna be? But I mean, maybe this is a second chance for her. But because obviously she didn't. I mean, she got a Golden Globe, which is not nothing. But um, no, didn't, nothing. absolutely did, didn't get the Oscar nomination in the end. But we'll see. Um, the Oscar nomination didn't seem to very matter very much for uh, Melissa McCarthy because she was never really in the in the in the hunt, unfortunately. But um, yeah, I, I think that the on uh, the one piece I'll say about the farewell is that like, can you ever forgive me? It's not an ensemble movie. The farewell, very much an ensemble movie. I mean, Shao Zhuzhen getting obviously not getting an Academy Award nomination either. But you know that being, I wouldn't say Aquafina didn't necessarily dominate the conversation for that film. To be fair, Richard E. Grant did get uh, I think did get a nomination. Mm-hmm. for his role, uh, his supporting role in that film. So again, we'll see. There, there's back and forth here and there. Uh, to me, it doesn't really feel like, uh, for dramatic purposes, that The Farewell was necessarily as, a, I don't know, game changer for how I view Aquafina as much as Can You Ever Forgive Me was uh, for Melissa McCarthy. But maybe that's just my own perceptions there. I'm not, not 100% sure. And maybe also because The Farewell didn't work as well for me as it did for others. Yeah, and it's a touch on the one that we that you didn't get into there, the lost daughter. Um, I'm excited for this one. I think this cast is awesome. Um, Olivia Coleman, obviously not someone who who does very much wrong, who really ever puts a foot wrong. Uh, Dakota Johnson is someone that I have grown to enjoy more uh, in recent years, particular with movies like Bad Times at the El Royale and Peanut Butter Falcon last year. I thought she's really good in both of, in both of those movies. Um, and then obviously it's nice to see Jesse Buckley getting some roles, even though she went, you know, unappreciated in award season for what she was able to do in wild Rose. Um, there's, she's got several movies coming out this year, I believe where she's going to have a not insignificant role. So uh, it's nice to see uh, her getting some recognition, even if the, again, the awards guilds did not recognize her, but yeah, this movie should be one to watch out for, for sure. Did you did you see Suspiria? Did, did I can't remember if you saw that? Yes, I did. Yeah, yeah. and that's another good Dakota Johnson performance. Yeah, yeah, I, think that, that was the one that I was. I thought you were going to say, but I couldn't. Then I couldn't remember if you'd seen it. Wild movie, wild movie. Um, okay, Scott. Other piece of news, uh, somewhat significant, since we did talk about this uh, in in some length back on the show when this story first hit, uh, and that involves the hunt, which is uh, Craig Zobel uh, directed film that sort of drew a lot of controversy. President Trump was speaking out against it because it uh, the plot supposedly pits, I mean, not supposedly, it's the latest trailer pretty much confirms it, pits sort of elites versus rednecks in this sort of most dangerous game style plot. Um, although, uh, you know, clearly looks to be satirical in, in nature. Um, of course, Universal uh, pulled the movie from theaters after some of the comments made by President Trump and other figures afraid maybe for safety concerns, something like that. But they are back. They are releasing this movie in just less than a month now. And this is going to be coming out in mid-March. Um, and they have sent out a new trailer as well, which 
seems to be leaning very heavily into the controversy and the political aspects of it, which I really didn't get that much from the first trailer that they released way back when. Um, and so it seems like not only are they releasing this movie, which I, you know, I wondered if they ever would, um, but they are, you know, again, playing up the fact that this was, you know, very controversial. And I suspect, I mean, I think it's a smart play from a marketing perspective. I suspect that this movie is actually going to do quite well at the box office because of the controversy. People are going to see what all the fuss is about. Now, whether there's actually a, you know, pointed and good movie at the end of, you know, this controversy is another question, I guess. But we will get to find out, which, I mean, I, I didn't know if that would be the case. Yeah, I love the marketing campaign for this movie. I'm just going to be really honest. I have no idea what the movie's going to end up looking like. But the fact that it's like, I don't know if you've seen the new poster, Scott, but uh, the new poster, and this was in the trailer as well, I think, says, you know, the tagline for the movie is, the most talked about movie of 2019 is one that no one's actually seen. And so, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. that was funny. And then also on the poster, it's full of, you know, what, what might be like kind of back of the box quotes or whatever that you get from like movie reviewers, but it's just like, I think it's just quotes from Donald Trump and other conservative media outlets about what the movie was like without having actually seen it. So one of them is like a disturbance to our country, shows Hollywood for what it really is, demented and evil, dangerous, a gory battle royale. So it's just like really leaning hard uh, into this whole, basically this whole censorship campaign that kind of happened last fall. I, I think that there was more to it being canceled than just the quotes, I think maybe the the controversy around, you know, President Trump and other conservative media outlets at the time probably put it over the put it over the top and ultimately was the reason why it got pulled. But I think there were other or other components to it as well. It being uh, very proximate to, I think, several shootings that happened yeah. um, and it being a bit of a, a sensitive issue there as well. But I do think that it was ultimately the comments from the conservative uh, wings of American politics that probably put it over the edge and got it canceled. But also, one of the last thing about the poster is that it has the original release date on it crossed off and then March 13th. So like I said, they're just like fully leaning into it. Um, I'm really in intrigued about what it's going to say because, you know, not only is it going to be more nuanced than anything anyone ever said about it back, you know, in September and, and August, uh, it's written by David Lindelof, who, you know, maybe is one of the cleverest, most um, politically pointed writers in the last few years and you think about Watchmen last year and then you know this movie and I haven't seen The Leftovers which again is one of the things that I plan on um, rectifying very soon but it, with Lindelof it's never going to be something so straight you know cut and dry you know whether the movie ultimately does come together that's another question but I don't think it's going to be a thematic problem. Yeah, no, I, and I mean, you got a decent cast. Betty Gilpin from Glow, uh, Hillary Swank, Emma Roberts um, are all in there. Um, so we'll see um, how, how this turns out. I'm optimistic. It's Bl Blumhouse producing as well, right? Yeah, is that a good thing these days or what? Yeah, well, look, I think it, I think on the whole, it's a good thing. They, they certainly have movies where, you know, they're not going to be classics, but um, I, I think on the whole, they have way more hits than they have misses, but um yeah, so so we'll see what happens with this movie, but I'm excited to see it now in just less than a month's time, and uh, we'll be talking about it on the podcast. So, yeah, no, we we rejiggered our schedule, which I think honestly probably ends up working better for us anyway uh, to see this movie. So I'm very excited about it. Yeah, all right, Scott. Last item for today, and that's a trailer which uh, came out this past week for Wes Anderson's new movie that we're going to be getting in summer uh, of 2020, and that is called The French Dispatch. Um, it appears to center on maybe some reporters at a uh, sort of 
French outpost newspaper in maybe World War II era. Um, and of course, because it is a Wes Anderson movie, stacked cast. You got Bill Murray, Edward Norton, Francis McDormand, uh, Willem Dafoe. All of all of the usual suspects are here. Um, a few new additions to the cast. Christoph Waltz is going to be in here. Timothy Chalamet, who I don't believe has appeared in any Wes Anderson films. Um, but, you know, this this looks like a classic Wes Anderson movie. Scott, anything stick out to you from this trailer? Yeah, I mean, to talk about classic Wes Anderson movie, I think one of the things that we both said uh, after after we watched the trailer was, mm, yes, that is indeed a Wes Anderson movie, mm-hmm. uh, because that's exactly the feel that you get from from watching the trailer. Uh, to give a little bit more background, background this is also a, a sort of Birds of Prey type uh movie title where it's the French dispatch is like the mainstream title kind of like birds of prey is, but the full title of the movie is the French dispatch of the Liberty, Kansas evening sun. Um, so yeah, it, it is a Paris, a Parisian outpost of this newspaper. I also think it's set during world war two. I'm not a hundred percent positive about that, but it's, it's definitely, it feels very anthology like uh, from that perspective. Yes. Maybe there are some central, like a couple characters that will, you know, recur in all these, but I think they're all about different news stories that, you know, this French dispatch is essentially covering over the course of the film. It'll be interesting to see what themes and narratives kind of tie together because with Wes Anderson, you should certainly expect there to be some sort of overarching theme, but it's also how you get in his, this kind of ridiculous cast that there, there probably isn't a quote unquote lead role in this film. I mean, maybe Bill Murray, cause I think he's supposed to be the editor in chief of uh, the particular office. And it is apparently based loosely on, kind of how the New Yorker was founded and, and, and started. And, and Bill Murray's character, I think, is supposed to be based off of uh, whoever it was that was the founder of the New Yorker. I can't remember his name um, right now. Oh, H- Harold Ross, uh, loosely based off that character. So I think this is grounded in Wes Anderson's kind of love of journalism and things like that. And it's I think it's going to be a, a tribute to that, at least to some extent. So yeah, it's, again... Thematically, or styli- I shouldn't say thematically, stylistically similar to every Wes Anderson movie you've ever seen in your life ever, period. But again, it seems like a little bit different subject material than either of his last three films, Isle of Dogs, which I didn't love. I liked but didn't love. And then Grand Prix Hotel, which I liked very much. And then Moonrise Kingdom before that, which is probably my favorite Wes Anderson movie. So we'll see, we'll, we'll see which flavor of variety that you get. But again, I'm looking forward to this. Regardless, yeah, like you said, Wes is on a roll. Even though I'm not the biggest Grand Budapest Hotel fan, uh, I, I mean, got nominated for Best Picture for that. And, uh, I mean, obviously I love Moonrise Kingdom and Isle of Dogs both. So I'm excited for this as, as much as, you know, I can get for, for a Wes Anderson movie. So, um, yeah, definitely definitely one on the, the summer radar. We will see. All right, Scott, that should just about do it for this episode of Sunlight at Scott. Uh, any parting thoughts? Uh you want to let us know where you can find you on Twitter, where we can find you on Twitter. Yeah. I mean, no, no particular parting thoughts, except uh, the fact that, you know, over the next couple of weeks, we're getting to, you know, put a final, a final bow in 2019 with our second some like it Scott awards, uh, which will be dropping next week. And then after that in traditional fashion, we will then look forward to what is to come in 2020 in which you are correct. No time to die will, will not be a movie that we talk about uh, during that episode. And that's not because we aren't excited, at least to some extent, about it, but because as great as 2019 was, there's lots to be excited about for 2020 already. And that doesn't account for all the movies that we'll learn about in September that are coming out in November and fall in love with. So there you go. Very true, Scott. Um, okay. And you can find you can find him at S. Shelton 2013 on Twitter. I'm not sure he said that. Yeah. Uh, I'm at Scarby Dent. 
and you can also find our podcast at Media Plug Pods on Twitter. Um, don't forget about our, don't forget about our Patreon page, patreoncom slash Pods. Uh, you can support us over there. Even if you can't support us over there, uh, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, do all of the things on your preferred podcast app. Um, and we hope you will enjoy. We hope you will join us and enjoy the next episode. But we hope you will join us for the next episode on which, as Scott said, we will be finally putting a bow on the year 2019 in movies with our second annual Some Like It Scott Awards. Uh, until then, for Scott Shelton, I'm Scott Harvey. We will see you next time. Thank you.